Good morning, wherever you are, and welcome to St. Michael's in the Morning, a podcast series encompassing everything from sermons and services to special audio presentations, brought to you by St. Michael's Episcopal Church in Austin, Texas. For more information or to make a donation to St. Michael's, please visit www.st-michaels.org. Welcome, everybody, to the St. Michael's in the Morning podcast, a podcast that encompasses everything from sermons and series to special audio presentations, and this would be the latter. This is a special audio presentation, and I have the privilege today of being joined by Dr. Philip Turner, a friend, a parishioner, an author, and a priest. Philip, um, for those of you who don't know him, was educated at Washington and Lee University. He attended Virginia Theological Seminary. He studied at Oxford University and also Princeton University. He was a missionary in Uganda from 1961 to 1971 and also taught Christian ethics at Seminary of the Southwest and General Theological Seminary. But whenever he left General, he did so to become the Dean of Berkeley Divinity School at Yale, which is a pretty big deal. Uh, After Philip retired, uh, he continued in ministry as the Interim Dean at Seminary of the Southwest. He also served as Interim Rector at a few congregations, including Grace Georgetown nearby. And he's also the author of many, many books, including one that just came out that I have finished reading recently that is excellent called Christian Socialism, The Promise of an Almost Forgotten Tradition. Now that's Philip's biography, but what I want to say about Philip, and I know that many, if not most of you listening know exactly who Philip is, and some of you know him pretty well. He and Elizabeth have attended St. Michael's. Um, for a while now. And of course, Elizabeth serves as our assistant for pastoral care. And so Philip and Elizabeth are not just really connected to our church, but they're dear, dear friends. But the thing about Philip is that even though he obviously has a towering uh, intellect uh, and he's really, really smart, he is just a, a humble, wise, faithful follower of Jesus and someone who has been so encouraging and supportive of me and someone I've learned from and someone who I really admire ever since he came um, to this church. And so to be able to spend time with you today, Philip, and to talk about your book, I just want to say thank you. Thanks for being with us today. You're you're more than welcome. Thank you for inviting me. I don't get asked to do this very often. Well, I, I, you are, you are most welcome. Uh, and it is, it's really, really fun. So I, I want to dive right in, um, because, um, you have just, um, well, well, first of all, before we talk about the book, I, I kind of, I gave everyone my intro to Philip Turner, but why don't you just say a few words about yourself, um, and, and how you winded up at St. Michael's. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, thank you. That's a good question. Uh, I think one of the things I'd like to say about myself is that I'm really a child of the Episcopal Church. Uh, my family, I don't know of any member of my family that's not Episcopalian, way, way back. 
Uh, I went to the St. Albans School, which is an Episcopal school in Washington, D.C. And I think it was there that I first got the idea that I might get be ordained one day. Um, and then I also, uh, after I finished my missionary tour in East Africa, uh, I knew I wanted to go to graduate school. I knew I wanted to be a teacher. That's what I wanted to do with my life. And the Episcopal Church Foundation paid for me to go to Princeton for, well, paid for me to go to Oxford for one year and then to Princeton for two years. And so I have been a fellow of the Episcopal Church Foundation. And I guess you can see the red thread that goes through this. Yeah. Uh, I, the, I have been formed by the Episcopal Church, pretty much. And so, it's been a, a pretty amazing formation. And for those of y'all listening here, I know not everyone listening attends St. Michael's, but for those that do, um, it's always it's always nice when anyone chooses to join St. Michael's. But whenever you have uh, two clergy who say this is where we want to. Um, live, move, and have our being and make a contribution to feed people and be fed. And especially when you have um, the retired dean of Berkeley at Yale say, this is a fine church. I just want you people uh, who attend St. Michael's to, to be proud that Philip and Elizabeth chose to be with us because they're just exceptional people. And uh, it's really, really fun having y'all here, Philip. Well, let me just respond to that. Uh, I can't say... I don't have words to express my gratitude. I've been a dean of a seminary. I go around and listen to my graduates preach, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we came to St. Michael's and I looked at Elizabeth and she looked at me and said, we found our home. Mm. Uh, Beautiful. Well, you have a lot to say, John. Yeah. (laughs) And I I don't say that very often. (laughs) Well, and praise. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, Well, and you do too. And so I want to talk about this book. First of all, congratulations. It's an amazing achievement um, to write a book of such depth. Um, And it's also a really interesting topic. Um, And so I imagine most of our listeners uh, don't know much about Christian socialism and uh, the history of Christian socialism. And so I think the natural place to begin, really two questions, Philip. One is, how did you become interested in Christian socialism? And then I think another important question is, how does Christian socialism, as you define it in the book, you know, how's that different from socialism as a secular political movement, which, you know, for the most part has a pretty negative connotation and our modern political climate. No politician wants to be labeled a socialist, whether you're a Democrat (laughs) or a Republican. And so it's kind of like a bad word. And so how does Christian socialism differ from uh, the modern day secular socialism? Well, there are two questions there. What led me to be interested in it? And two, what sort of socialism is this anyway? Um, I became interested in it because when I came back from Africa, you, you, you look at your own culture in a very different way. Uh, you've had other experiences and, and you begin to ask questions about it. And one thing I saw was uh, what we now all know about, huge disparities of wealth, mm. huge inequalities, a good bit of social unrest. Um, 
And it suddenly occurred to me that this is not a dissimilar situation than that that obtained in, the, in, the, in England in the 1900s because of the industrial revolution. Our dislocation has been because of the digital revolution, but there it was the industrial revolution. There were tons and tons of people you know, uprooted. Uh, wealth was, was controlled by a very few people. Um, and uh, th that was one thing. And so I said, well, my goodness, I wonder how these guys, the Christian socialists responded to that. Uh, the other thing is that I discovered, or it hit me, that the same set of social presuppositions underlay England in the 19th century as underlie us. And what I mean by that is, there is in the 19th century, there was a, a political philosophy called political economy. And it said basically, Econ economies work by laws internal to themselves that there is no room for moral consideration. You just have to let the markets work. Mm. And that struck me as something very familiar, namely neoliberalism, which is very au courant today. And the, the Christian socialists reacted forcefully in criticism of what they call political economy. Um, and they said, what, what we're dealing with is a rotten moral foundation to society. Society is not, they wanted to say, a bunch of competing individuals. More fundamentally, it is a social reality. We yeah. are larger than ourselves. Yes, we compete. Yes, we do all those things. But we are essentially social beings. We wouldn't be individuals apart from the society in which we, we were formed. And that really comes through in the book that, um, you know, Christian socialism, one of the things that is really important uh, for them is, and really important, I think, for all theologians is to articulate what does it actually mean to be a human being? And what is the telos so the, or the end? You know, why did God create us in the first place? Um, and if I'm reading the book right and hearing you correctly, the Christian socialists had a very particular understanding of the human being as a social creature that differed from the rugged individualistic thing where we're just all kind of separate competing for scarce limited resources. Is that, is that right? Well, that's, a, that's exactly correct. And they, their writing on this is very sophisticated. Mm -hmm. But basically, their argument is, why are you the way you are? Well, it's largely because you were raised by these people in these circumstances. This, this makes you who you are, and you can't exist apart from community with other people. And so they said, what's deepest in us is not competition. What's deep in us, what's deepest in us is cooperation and fellowship. That that's what we long for. And, and anyway, no, it's beautiful. I mean, I love it because what I love is, you know, the question of what is deepest to us, what is most intrinsic to our being? Why did God actually create us? And, you know, if you kind of go to a worldview where, well, ultimately our deepest purpose is to compete for resources, that's eventually a nihilistic worldview. And I think the Christian socialists saw that and they offered a much more robust, positive theological vision that was hopeful. I mean, it's a hopeful vision. 
Oh, it is. And, and furthermore, they were not, you know, they were not Marxists. They did not want to s- submerge the individual into the group. They wanted to say, we are social. That the basic thing is we live with one another, we support one another, and yes, we compete. But that's not the fundamental us. That's right. And, and I think, you know, it's important, you know, as we listen to this, it's Christian socialists. You know, that's why they're not Marxists, because they're not socialists with a Christian flavor. They're Christian first, they're Christian socialist first. second. Exactly. And, and so to them in, in the book, you talk about how, and I'm kind of building on your comment about them not being Marxists, that they had a theological vision and so important to them was the doctrine of the incarnation. And I'm wondering if you can say a word about that, because it seems like this doctrine of the incarnation really plays a huge role in how they see the world. Well, it mattered to them for the following reasons. Um, The dominant church party in the 19th century, latter part of the 19th century in England, were the evangelicals. And the evangelicals' whole stress was on the personal salvation of the individual. And they want to say, now wait a minute here. That's, that's important. But the basic thing is that uh, in, 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 in God becoming flesh, he bestowed his love, his honor, his grace, his holiness, not only on individuals, but all areas of human activity that God was interested in our social lives, our political lives, economic lives. These are all encompassed by the care and concern of God. And therefore, we cannot define our mission simply in terms of individual souls. We have to define our mission in a broader context of society and all of its manifestations. And this gave them the license for them for the Church of England to conceive of itself as actually having a social mission Mm -hmm. that cannot be exhausted by the salvation of individual souls. So there were two kinds of arguments, and I'll shut up, but there were two kinds of arguments that they marshal. One is, it's contrary to human nature to just start off with individuals. We're social. If we're going to be saved, that's the way it's got to be. And so uh, the second thing is God in his love encompasses all these areas of human activity. And therefore, since they're concerned for God, they should be concerned for us as the church. Yeah. Now that, that's, that's everyday stuff now, but it wasn't then. That's right. And, and that's, I think that's what makes them really unique in their time is that it's almost like they were overcorrecting a theological emphasis that was elsewhere. You, you know, one of the things that I really appreciated uh, reading the book and also knowing you and having had other conversations is that, um, you know, the, the, the name of the book is not, um, well, in the book, you both uh, affirm and at times differentiate from the Christian socialists. You say, this is what they did really, really well. This is where we need to hear their voice. This is where their voice cannot be forgotten. This is where 
their voice is at the heart of a proper understanding, not just of Anglicanism, but also Christianity. And that really shines through. Otherwise, you never would have written the book. And yet there's there's places where you say uh, or where you hint at uh, uh, perhaps, you know, maybe they didn't get this fully right. And I'm wondering if you could say a bit more about both where you really affirm the Christian socialists and think their voice needs to be recovered and where you personally would say, I wish they had emphasized this other thing a bit more. That's a great question. Um, you know, your strength is always, always your weakness as well. Yeah. And their strength was the social meaning of, of Christ's incarnation. Their weakness is that they turned the incarnation into a simple moral imperative, the imperative of love. It was no longer a doctrine of salvation. It was an ethical model. Jesus becomes a kind of model from the way we ought to be. And the evangelicals are saying, wait a minute, he died for our sins. He did something that made that that procured our forgiveness. You can't let go of that. So there was, I think that's a big problem for Episcopalians today. We're prepared to say big time, uh, yes, we should be concerned about social justice, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But we kind of make people, what shall I say? We kind of make fun of people if they ask a serious question, are you saved? Well, that's right. a good question, you know? Right. It's a damn good question. Well, I, I, I hear two different things in there, both of which are important. One is, you know, and the emphasis on the incarnation that, uh, and turning it in, into a moral imperative, you know, you neglect things like sin, salvation, atonement, things that really are, if we're being honest, just so central for the gospel writer, so central for Paul, so central for uh, the, the history of Christianity. But the other thing I'm hearing is just the, the, the very move of turning a theological doctrine like incarnation into a moral imperative and saying, well, incarnation equals command to love. Actually, not quite, right? I mean, exactly. they're connected, but you can't turn the incarnation into something else. And it, it, whenever you said that, it makes me think we actually do the same thing from time to time as Christians with both the cross and the resurrection. We say, well, the cross is really about solidarity. Right. It's just about solid. Or, or we say the resurrection, it's, it's really about new beginnings or it's about new hope. Well, no, actually, <laughs> actually, you know, those things can flow, but, but these are robust theological doctrines and we don't need to turn them into something else. And so I think that also really comes through um, in a profound way in your book, but, but also in a generous way, in a very generous way. Well, I hope so. But the thing is too, I think it's important to identify your Achilles heel. And uh, as I said, uh, the strength is your weakness. I think that incarnational Anglicanism has very easily turned into a kind of optimistic humanism. We're just gonna make things better. We care about all areas of life. We're not narrow-minded. Well, good, we shouldn't be, but I think you see where I'm going with that. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so you transition later on in the book and um, to, to the mission of the church. 
And I don't want to say you transition because the whole thing ultimately is a labor of love speaking to the mission of the church. But in a very direct way, you quote some other modern day thinkers who uh, have some things in common with the earlier Christian socialists you write about, like um, Stanley uh, Harawas, who wrote the foreword to this book, which for those of you who don't know, that's a pretty big deal. He's a, a big time thinker. And, and also John Howard Yoder. Um, and they talk about the church's mission being exemplary communal witness. And I'm wondering, is that the phrase you would use for the mission of the church today? Uh, and if not, what would you say the mission of the church is in this unique moment of time? Well, I think they got very close to it. I, I might want to rephrase it a little bit. But first of all, let me say what they saw and what you, which seems to me not enough of us have seen is the fact that Christianity is no longer really the dominant cultural force that we have been used to it being. That is to say, uh, well, I can tell a story that will illustrate what I mean. Um, yeah. When my wife was rector, was an assistant rector at St. James Madison Avenue, uh, Charlie Perry, who was then dean of the cathedral, came up and did a Lenten sub, uh, program. And he asked, uh, where do your children during the day run into evil? An hour and a half later, Charlie was still writing on the newsprint where these parents thought during that during the day, their children were confronted with evil. And mm -hmm. finally, one man got up and said, look, I got it. I got it. We parents are outgunned by the culture. And my church isn't a bit of help with that. Oh, wow. And that was like, wow. Uh, and it seems to me that Yoder and Harawa saw something like that before a lot of other people did. And they said, you know, we've been talking about social action, this, that, or the other thing. But Stanley's famous phrase is the church is, so, is a social action. It, it is a way of being in the world. And that's what we really need to concentrate on. And I think, I hate to say it, but I think few of us really have grasped the depth of, of the challenge that this presents to the churches. How do we bring up our children in the knowledge and love of God? How do we ourselves maneuver this world, which is not necessarily friendly to our deepest beliefs? And I'm not convinced in my own mind that as a church or as churches, we've really come to grips with that satisfactorily. And I think Stanley and, and John Howard Yoder were the leading voices in saying, pay attention to this. Well, well I wonder, you know, Philip, that's so um, insightful. And, and you use a phrase that I, I appreciate. I don't know if it's your own or if you quote someone else, but you talk about the church's changed social location. And what that's I take me. you to catch you. Okay, good. Well, I like it. I'm, I, I now use it and, uh, and I, I will try and reference you when I can, but I've been using it a lot. And, um, and what it really means um, uh, for those listening to say that the the church has a changed social location is to say that, you know, society is not looking for us as a moral tutor on all the uh, hot button ethical dilemmas. And as all of you know, Sunday morning, is not a time when we shut down all the shops and go worship the Lord in our Sunday best. That 
and, and this is this is just a, a reality of of things have changed and life has changed and people's experience of things have changed and um, and the church just doesn't have the same standing in society uh, as it did you know, even 50, 60 years ago. And it's been uh, a slippery, long decline. And some people lament that, other people celebrate it and say, well, this is wonderful news. We can now actually get some clarity on uh, what it means to be salt and light in this world and to not take our mission for granted. And what people like Stanley Harawas and Yoder and Philip Turner do is actually say, we actually have to think deeply and critically about what the mission of the church is uh, in light of the fact that our social location has changed. And, um, and one of the things you say, Philip, a lot, another place where I quote you, uh, is you say that the church is to be a place uh, in which Christ is taking form. What does that mean to you? Uh, well, it means that uh, one of the Great genius is behind the Book of Common Prayers, in fact, St. Benedict. And St. Benedict's rule just underlies everything that's Anglican, in my view. And what he said was that the church is a school for the service of the Lord. It's where we learn a way of life. And that way of, in that way of life, Christ is actually taking form in his body, the church. And so what, you know, what are you doing here? Well, we're waiting upon God because we need to be transformed so that we reflect Christ in our life together. And I think that, again, we run head on into basic assumptions about religion that are now pervasive in our culture. And those pervasive ideas about religion is that they have to do with personal strengths or coping with personal issues. So we go to the church of our choice. Uh, I mean, if you think about that, all you do is laugh or cry. Uh, God is just waiting for us to make a choice. Um, no. Uh, and I, and, and so, so what it, I like to say, what is the purpose of a vestry meeting? Well, yeah, pass the budget. But the real issue is, in doing so, is Christ taking form? Mm -hmm. uh, when you have, uh, uh, you know, summer camp for your children, uh, what's happening? Oh, they're having fun and they're getting, they're getting to know all about nature. Well, uh, that's a good thing. I'm all for it. Uh, but I would much rather say we we pray that through this experience, Christ will take form in this new generation. Mm -hmm. um, and I think uh, the, this is me, the professional theologian and seminary teacher. I think that this implies that our clergy reimagined what they're up to. Mm -hmm. Now, I, what I detect as I read the blogs and I read the next generation and the next generation below me is they're very interested in liturgy. Well, I like that. That's good. Uh, the gathering of God's people uh, to praise the Lord uh, and to show forth the Lord's death till we, till he comes. That's, that's great. Um, 
But that's not why I think most people are there. <laughs> I think most people are there for personal help, for personal needs. And, you know, I, I find the answer to life's problems, whatever. It's very self-referential. Mm-hmm. Very self-referential. So we think, of, we think rightly of our clergy as administrators of the, of the church, as celebrants of the Eucharist, as offering pastoral care. But you know, I, if, if we're right about, if Yoder and Harawas and others are right about our social situation, we're much more like the Jews in diaspora, mm-hmm. scattered to the four winds. Uh, and what did they do? A part of what they did, they invented the synagogue and the rabbinate. And what's, what is it about the rabbi? The rabbi is the teacher. Mm. The rabbi is the one who imparts the belief and the way of life. Mm. And he does it, she does it across the board, all generations. And here in particular, I think we need to rethink what we do with our young people. I mean, St. James Madison Avenue, my gosh, uh, the world is their orchard. But what's really forming? that age group. Well, it's not Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. It's where yeah. are you going to get into Harvard or not? Right. Uh, this is this is I mean when I was sent to St. Albans school, was it was it so that you will become a, a more a wise Christian? No, because I could get into a darn good college with a scholarship. Yeah. That was that's that's it. Um and I don't know how to put this any, any more strongly. I, it, it sounds obvious on one way, but I think it involves a huge shift in what we expect of our clergy, of what we expect of our congregation. Uh, and I don't think we're anywhere near that. It, it makes me, you know, what you're saying really uh, speaks to me. And it, it, one of the things I'm really present to is I don't think you're talking about a new technique. I don't think you're talking about a new program. You're not talking about a a different twist in the strategic plan, but it makes me think of what Jesus says of, you know, a good tree bears good fruit, a bad tree bears bad fruit, Uh, that it is out of who we are that ultimately we pass on and teach. Uh, Or as C.S. Lewis once said, Christianity is more caught than it is taught. And that's not to replace like the deep importance of catechesis, of teaching, of biblical understanding, but that um, that really what you're talking about in which Christ takes form, you're not talking about like what's the checklist of what the church is to do, but rather the question of who is the church to become and to whom does the church belong and what is the, you know, where is this all going in light of the life, death, and resurrection of the one we call Lord. And I think that is why, you know, it's not a strategic plan. Uh, it, it, it begins in prayer. It ends in prayer, right? I mean, this is, this is ultimately, um, um, this is ultimately a, a deep um, spiritual metamorphosis through and through that I think you're talking about. Well, it's true. Uh, I think that it's how we live together, but it's also the fact that among us are exemplars. 
people whose lives are the truth. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I am an academic and a priest because of two men whose mm -hmm. lives I admired. That's true and, for me too. I mean, that had more effect on me than anything in the world. Uh, yeah. And, uh, well, I remember, <laughs> again, a personal story. The dean of students at Washington Lee when I was there was a man named James Laburn. He was a bachelor uh, and he taught classics and social anthropology. Um, but every night, he was a bachelor, every night at, an, at about 8.30 or 9 o'clock, he went into his study and he turned the light on. And every student of his knew that if that light was on, you are welcome here. Yeah. And we, I'm about to cry. We went there because we were, we were in pain. Yeah. And he took that pain and he heard us and gave us wisdom. And for my mind, that's the kind of teacher I want to be. Does that make sense? Oh, I, I mean, it, it, I mean, the word that we're kind of, the, the word that we're dancing around, the word that's really important to me is the word grace. You know, yeah. grace is not just an idea. Grace is turning your light on and allowing hurting people to come to sit at your feet in order to pass on the things that you have received from God. And I mean, ultimately, what is the church to be but um, a group of people with their light on? I mean, I mean, I think that's where we're going to end this because I'm not sure there's a finer image, that image of when the light's on, bring your pain, you know, uh, bring your friends, you're going to have a warm welcome and we're going to talk and listen about matters of truth. And that's going to start with your own life and with what you're experiencing. But, you know, from there, it's going to be wrapped in an understanding that um, we believe that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Yeah. Philip, I'm wondering, is there um, anything that we haven't talked about today about this book, this really fine book that you've written and published um, that you want to say? Well, I think what I'd like to do, there were, I had I'd anticipated this question and I've got about six points that I'm not going to make because I, I'm inclined to, to go back to our beginning and again ask what what do these people mean by calling themselves Christian socialists? Great. And I want to read a quotation from Bishop Charles Gore of Oxford, who was a very big deal in this and one of the most intelligent theologians Anglicanism has ever produced. But he, he collected a series of essays on Christian socialism. And he says this, these are all socialists in a general sense. That is to say, they are all at one in believing that no stable or healthy industrial or social fabric can be built upon the principle of individualism or is consistent with the assertion of an almost unrestricted right to private property. Accordingly, they hold that our present industrial society rests upon a rotten foundation and that what is needed to remedy the manifest sickness of our acquisitive society is something much more than particular social reforms. Mm. That, that's who they were right there. 
And it comes through so well, Philip, in this book. Um, and so again, for those of y'all listening, the name of the book is Christian Socialism, The Promise of an Almost Forgotten Tradition by Philip Turner. That's Philip with one L. And you can buy it on Amazon and many other places. Um, Philip, I just want to say thank you, not just for this time, but for who you are. Thank you for your friendship. Thank you for being a colleague and a mentor. Thanks for being a parishioner. And um, just again, I've really treasured this time and want to say thank you. As do I. Thank you so much. It's a real treat and a great pleasure to be with my priest. <laughs>